0: Any writer, fiction, nonfiction, has to be aware of the audience, have a vision for why am I writing this, who am I writing it for, who's going to want to buy this, how can I make the book sellable...
1: Join the Author's Corner today, start writing the book you've dreamed about.
2: Welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci. And with keeping in mind these interesting book statistics around the tremendous revenue that is generated each year through textbook sales, I have invited to join us today, John Kilpatrick. Now, Dr. John Kilpatrick is the Managing Director of Greenfield Advisors. He also serves as a director of the Washington State Economic Development Finance Authority and is on the National Board of Advisors for Carson College of Business at Washington State University. He holds a Ph.D. in finance from the University of South Carolina. And of particular interest for today's conversation, Dr. Kilpatrick is the author of numerous books, including the recently published McGraw-Hill text, Real Estate Valuation and Strategy. Dr. Kilpatrick is a MIA member of the Appraisal Institute and serves on the review board for their flagship publication, The Appraisal Journal. He is also a principal member of the Real Estate Counseling Group of America. He has presented to the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Science, Space and Technology the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the National Association of Home Builders, the Asian Real Estate Society, the Technical University of Eindhoven in the Netherlands, the Aspen Institute, and in 2020, he was named to the advisory board of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. John also has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, and other national publications. And today, he will share with us his story, many stories, actually. If John is anything, he's a great (laughs) storyteller. So, you will hear of his journey in preparing his textbook and having it published. And I am very confident that you will be both entertained and educated along the way. So enjoy. John, welcome to the Author's Corner. Howdy. How are you? Doing great. I'm so happy to have you with us today.
0: Well, I'm so glad to be here. It's a good day.
2: (laughs) It is a good day. It's a good day to talk about books, isn't it? I
0: think so. Well, every day is a good day to talk about books. Right.
2: (laughs) And, you know, like I was just saying to you a bit ago, is one of the reasons I'm Besides your charming personality, which I'm sure the listeners will have at least some sense of by the end of the interview. But aside from that, one of the reasons I've been really excited to have you on is that your book that was published recently by McGraw-Hill, Real Estate Valuation and Strategy, a guide for family offices and their advisors. And this is published under the McGraw-Hill textbook section. McGraw-Hill has a mass market trade division, and they also do a lot of textbooks. And you are really our first guest that we're having on the author's corner, who has had that experience, which is my understanding is a little bit different than the mass market trade experience. So would you share with us a little bit about your process? And, you know, first of all, just what led you to want to write this book in the first place? We can kind of start there. and Yeah,
0: I guess because I had run out of people to talk to. (laughs) I was increasingly working with the sort of people for whom this is an audience, and maybe I need to back up a little bit. It is published by McGraw-Hill's textbook division, and it certainly can be, and I would welcome it, being used as a classroom text in an appropriate college course. But it was aimed at what I'll call the professional education niche. And it was specifically aimed at a growing population of folks called family office advisors. And these are folks, and we could talk all day about what they do, but they advise people on their money, kind of at the low end of the spectrum, you might think of them as your your wealth managers or stockbrokers or, or what have you. At the upper end of the spectrum, Think about Bill Gates, who probably does not carry his own credit cards, right? There's, there's somebody tagging along behind Bill with a sack full of money, you know. <laughs> and I made a joke, and you know, I live in the foothills of the Cascades, not far from the Gateses or what used to be the Gateses, the ex-Gateses. And there was a time several years ago. And this is not top secret, public knowledge. Bill Gates was fined 800 and some change, $1,000, $830,000 or so, by the SEC for a technical stock trade violation. And I commented in public that the good news is he paid it with the loose change in the ashtrain's car. <laughs> and so, as you can imagine, there's a spectrum of folks yeah. who advise people. <laughs> like they know darn little about real estate. I've talked to these family office managers, and they admit, number one, that wealthy families typically have about 25% or more of their wealth in real estate, and yet their advisors are clueless about it. So it's aimed at that audience. And so I know I've meandered way off the subject with that, but that's kind of the We knew that nobody was writing to that audience and nobody was writing kind of a cookbook for that audience. And so.
2: But isn't that something about like when you're in that textbook division, right? And whether it's for academia or for professional development, they tend to be more niched topics with a more niche audience.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, think about your own academic career, and nobody picks up a copy of advanced physics. For light afternoon reading. Right. <laughs> you know, one rarely sees somebody at the side of the swimming pool at the Four Seasons thumbing through intro to thermodynamics. <laughs> and so, yeah, these tend to be, you know, cost accounting principles and procedures. Just, you know, yeah.
2: not going to be. That was the- my top beach reading pick for this summer, John. Now you've, yes. you know, spoiled the surprise. <laughs> it's not gonna be in the, in the markdown
0: bin at, at Barnes and Noble.
2: Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Probably should be, but they're gonna be dealing with very niche topics. And what's more, because the topics tend to be extraordinarily technical, the, the folks at McGraw Hill or at the publishing company come to the table with a very fresh eye. In other words, they don't even they're not trying to become educated mm-hmm. on the topic. They're really interested in the readability of the topic. And there's a positive for that, I think, because if the folks who are doing the editorial work know too much about the topic, then they skim through the jargon and fail to realize that, you know, hey, there's a predicate to what I'm reading here that the uninformed reader may need to read.
2: I agree 100%. And I've actually shared that with people when they're like, well, I don't know... If I should work with you on this book, because you don't know anything about this topic. And I'm like, that's exactly (laughs) because why you should your reader doesn't know nearly as much as you either. And the last thing you need is an editor who knows almost as much as you do. (laughs) And you're in an echo chamber.
0: (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. And so I think you've got to go through what I'll call a double blind process Mm. of what I'll call an agent editor somebody who's helping you sell the book, somebody like you, I guess, or, and you and I have had conversations about yep. what you do and you are set up to do a number of things, but there's you and there are folks like you who can come to somebody like John and say, uh, okay, Kilpatrick, I don't think we can sell this to McGraw Hill. You've got too much jargon, it's too technical. you know." Then once we get that mass of spaghetti straightened out, in the word processor. We can then send it to McGraw-Hill. We're going to further hone this.
2: Yes. So, I was curious because I haven't really done a lot of work in the textbook area, except very early on with my mentor who co-authored a political science textbook and I helped him with a revision. Mm -hmm. So, But that deal had been long signed. So, did you utilize a literary agent or did you go directly through McGraw-Hill? I was just curious about your process as far as how did you end up with a deal for this book with McGraw-Hill.
0: Yeah. And I did work through a literary agent and a person who came to me through an introduction through Renaissance that you oh. and I have together. Mm-hmm. Yep. And very, very much a worthwhile process because I had to sell the book to him. Yes. And of course, Robin, this was before you and I met. So I apologize. Of course. I, I, I it's you.
2: okay. As I yeah. forgive you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. But yeah. And that's what I've referred to as this double-blind process, although it's not. Really-
2: so he, so your uh, agent, you worked with your agent to hone the message of the book and also to put together a proposal. Is that how you all did it, or was it a little? Yeah, different?
0: and it may be. And I know we don't have six hours. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> it's going to be dinner time. It's
2: excruciating months. detail, but just a little more detail. Yeah, <laughs> I,
0: I had at one time considered the notion of making this book a mass market book. And it had, in fact, been approached by a different publisher, who shall remain nameless, because we had some long conversations and I was actually talking to an editor at that and had worked through two or three chapters. And then I realized that what I was writing was pablum, that I didn't want to I was going to have to, excuse my French, dumb down what I wanted to write to the point where it was not going to be useful for the target audience. I couldn't even tell you who the target audience would be at that Mm
1: -hmm. point.
0: And so any writer, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, has to be aware of the audience and has to have a vision for Why am I writing this? Who am I writing it for? Who's going to want to buy this? How can I make the book sellable? That's just kind of the way capitalism works. You know, if you want to be a successful author, doggone it, people gonna have to buy your books. If you want to be a successful songwriter, people are going to have to listen to your music at some point. Otherwise, you're just doing it for your own personal interest. And I can write all day if I'm not worried about who's going to read the stuff. And so I was talking to the intermediary who introduced me to my age in the way I carry on so many conversations, which was over cocktails.
1: And
2: <laughs> One of the best ways to carry on a
0: conversation. I can tell you exactly where that scene was. That was the <laughs> club room at the Charleston Place Hotel
2: oh, lovely. in Charleston,
0: South Carolina. And exactly where I was sitting. I can tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> and I was bemoaning having gone through this process. And my friend said, well, you know, you really need to talk to this guy. And I said, well, great. But you said a, you know, a meeting. And he said, just call him. Tell him, you know, I told you to call him. <laughs> and I called him and I told him everything I've just told you. And he said, ooh, that's a lot. So we started working, you know, an outline. You got to have an outline. You yeah, always got to know where you're going to go with these things. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: And I wrote a couple of chapters just to give him a notion of my writing style. Right. And I heard a word the other day to describe me, which is loquacious.
2: (laughs) You? (laughs) No.
0: One of the the great things he did was once we decided with McGraw-Hill this was going to be a 180,000 word book. He got me, literally it was 180,000. Oh my books. God. Oh yeah. He got me down. As I say, talked me in off the ledge, probably a million words if I'd been left on my own. Right. And, right. Uh, and there's some real, <laughs> real value in taking something that you thought was going to take you a thousand words And then figuring out a way to say that in 500 words or 200 words. There's some real,
2: real value in that. You know, it's funny because one of my sayings, I believe if you can describe something in a way that creates an image in the reader's mind, then an image paints a thousand words, right? So you don't need a thousand words to describe. If you can give the reader something they can picture, then you can be much tighter. There was a...
0: Well, first, I am terrible at telling shaggy dog stories to friends, which is why I end up buying the drinks, because that's the only reason they'll listen to me. But but I'm also not technically a very good writer. And that is to say, I did not major in English literature. Mm -hmm. And so I am describing a Politico As uh, somebody brings a copy of Proust to a knife fight, I don't don't even know exactly the correct way to pronounce Proust. Uh, Proust. 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 You see how bad my English lit was. It's okay. It's okay. In finance and math. Yeah. Yeah. So my writing style is just to write down as if I was trying to tell you a story, and so each chapter has to have something funny it they could be giving a ted talk and each of the chapters is basically a ted talk. you know it's it's got you know something punchy up front to get your attention why are we doing this and the, the traditional model of a ted talk of you know the i the
2: think if protagonist, you put, yeah yeah if you could put funny stories in a book on real estate i think that you know, and investing i mean that's great you know people love stories and if you're entertaining them I don't care what the book topic is. I think first and foremost, and I know, yes, it's loaded with value and information, but what you're selling is entertainment. Number one, entertainment. You're in the entertainment industry first, because if you're not entertaining them, they're going to stop reading. So that's good.
0: The late night talk show host, Craig Ferguson, Mm -hmm. used to be very jaundiced about these things. And he said, you know, his show is just to fill up time between selling toothpaste and (laughs) You know, that's it. It's gotta be entertaining.
2: Yeah. So your agent now you ended up with McGraw Hill and then you worked with the editors and people at McGraw Hill, I would imagine.
0: Via my agent, he was engaged throughout the process. And then even before we delivered started delivering even test chapters to McGraw Hill, I mean, we'd sent some an outline and some test chapters and they liked it, but we also engaged a uh, copy editor, really necessary because neither my agent nor I even claim to know how to spell. Remember, I just told you a minute ago, I can't even pronounce Proust, <laughs> let alone spell it. So uh, there was a lot of that going on. And a good copy editor also helps with continuity. Totally. Because yeah, if I mention something at the end of the chapter or mentioned something in chapter 24 that alludes back to chapter 3, but I forgot to describe it in chapter 3. You know, Textbooks are kind of like novels in that way.
1: Oh, yeah,
2: interesting. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to use a term in chapter 24, you better have defined it already somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And, and given people the context that you're going to be talking.
0: It's also writing a textbook, writing 180,000 words. It's going to take a while.
2: It for real ended up one hundred and eighty thousand words.
0: It for real ended up one hundred and seventy nine thousand. Wow, ninety six words. Yeah.
2: Well, that is a textbook, and you know, just give our listeners context. Like the average length book for like a mass market trade book on real estate would probably be around sixty, maybe seventy thousand words. So that's.
0: Yeah, and when I was originally talking to a mass market publisher. Not only was it only going to be about 70 or 80,000 words, but it was clear that this publisher liked books that told the same story over and over and over again. So, So chapter nine is just going to be a repeat of chapter three. And I was not going to get a consistent set of thoughts out.
2: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, because there's definitely, especially in the business space, there's some books that really just could have been a tweet.
1: And that's um, some because I think
2: the people writing these books tend to actually have a lot more to say. I've never heard of a publisher that was actually encouraging that,
0: yeah. Well, anyway, it was a publisher, like I say, is yeah, yeah, going yeah. to remain nameless, but that's why, yeah. <laughs> back before COVID, there was a lot of shelf space to be filled at Barnes and Noble, <laughs> and by the way, I went to a couple of bookstores. And literally just pull books off the shelf to say well you know what's being said on this topic and it's
2: well, an important step to do that yeah
0: yes and i found that there were a lot of authors who had just copied each other you know i mean they were really a lot of the same stuff over and over again it was like picking out a can of beans at the grocery store do i want these or this can of beans is a nickel cheaper
2: <laughs> right, right you know right uh,
0: <laughs> I know you know you've got to be a real connoisseur of refried beans right <laughs> pay 10 cents a can to get the gourmet stuff for your tacos you know and, so I'm and curious, uh, at
2: 180,000 words like how long was this process for you
0: well from conceiving the book mm-hmm to receiving my author's copies in the mail was probably about two and a half years.
2: That's pretty fast considering. And remember,
0: I wrote a lot of stuff that I kind of threw away. Uh Although on my computer, I actually have a subfolder in this folder called stuff I might use. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so there was a lot of junk that sort of got, that's like that junk drawer in your kitchen that's got a right, screwdriver. Right. <laughs> so there's some odds to used light bulbs and that sort of thing in the, in the drawer. But once I, you know, chapter one on the keyboard, yeah. the writing of the book took about a year. And I was fortunate enough to be able to devote a significant amount of time. I was at a place in my... I have a consulting practice, so it's kind of at a place in that consulting practice where I could devote a good bit of time to it. And by the way, a surprisingly large amount of iPad, like oh, wow. uh, text yep. files, just a s- stream of consciousness about a particular topic. And then I would throw that text file back to my laptop and actually organize, and format it, chop it into paragraphs, and that sort of thing. But here's the problem. Over the course of about a year, it's surprising how much... Your literary voice changes.
2: Mm, interesting.
0: Because I'm doing other things and I'm learning about stuff mm. constantly, and I'm doing other consulting practices and I'm talking to clients, what have you, and finding things that don't work. Great quote from Thomas Edison: Results. Man, have mm. I got results? I know a thousand things that won't work. And, uh,
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. And so I would get to chapter 24 and catch myself using a voice that was inconsistent with chapter one. Now, I don't know how many readers would be subtle enough to pick up on this, but that sort of inconsistency, not just in the voice, but in the story you're trying to tell.
2: Mm. So how did you handle that?
0: I was constantly punching up the outline. Mm-hmm. I'd started out with a, an outline of X number of chapters, and I was moving things around in the outline. Yep. I would get yep. to chapter six and say, you know, this really belongs in chapter nine, or maybe this belonged back in chapter three. And of course, I was feeding these chapters serially to my editor, and he and I were back and forth with these things. So we had a lot of what I'll call version control problem. So oh. I've got chapter one,
2: oh. chapter one
0: edited by my agent, chapter one re edited by me, chapter one sent back. So each chapter went through several iterations, and we might be working on chapter one editorially while I'm writing chapter four.
2: Right, right, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, uh, we have a whole document labeling system in my company because of this very thing. So I'm curious, how much time were you putting in on a daily basis or a weekly basis? Like, Just give us an idea of like how many hours were you putting in to be able it, to write 180,000 words in a year?
0: It varied widely from zero to maybe 20 hours. There was a period when I took a boat down the Nile, I didn't write anything that week. I think every writer... Mario Puzo, when he was writing The Godfather, took his advance and then took off for Europe for, you know, 90 days and then came back and hadn't written anything. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got to.
2: He was simmering the sauce, you know. I will write that down. That is (laughs) simmering the thought. (laughs) We all know it tastes better the longer it simmers.
0: Well, 12, if, if you're
2: cool, writing... Not, a, not the same with writing, though, people. <laughs> if, if you're writing a
0: book called The Godfather, it might be good to go to Sicily and actually... to Italy, something.
2: exactly. Spend a few months. I think that was probably smart that he did that, yeah.
0: Dorothy Parker was apparently famous for that same thing. She would take an in advance, take off, and come back and have written absolutely nothing. I just finished reading, totally off topic, just finished reading John Cleese's autobiography. And, which is really, really fun. Uh-huh. He and Graham Chapman were writing partners for many years before they ever formed Monty Python. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very clear that they took a lot of advances without a single clue as to what they were going to write. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but all managed to come together. So, yeah, we had to work with an outline. The outline is not just the skeleton of the book it's also a story unto itself. It tells the story that I want to tell. And I, I like to think of even a textbook, even a nonfiction book, as having a logical first, second, and third act yeah. attached to it. Okay. So if you were to go take a, a course at a reasonably good American university, you might notice that professor has structured, or at least when I was teaching college, a professor would kind of structure the course into first, second, and third acts. There's no, professors are not attempting to be playwrights when they do that. It's just that that is kind of a good structure for dealing with these things. By the way, if you are a young army officer and you go to the infantry school at Fort Benning, they will teach you to do things in thirds. They will teach you to split your company into three parts have one on the left, one in the center, and one in reserve. It's neat how that rule of three three works. So the book has some stuff that you got to get across in in the first part. It's got to be punchy and really interesting to get through that middle section where you're just doing kind of character development (laughs) so that you can get to the end where there's some special topics and some stuff that may not interest everybody but at that point they're invested in what they're trying to
2: teach them. <laughs> I'm curious when you talk about character development what would be the parallel to that in your part 2 of your book like is that just like these fundamental principles like what is character development in that context?
0: If you think about the first third of the book roughly as teaching some very basic fundamentals.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
0: the technology of real estate analysis,
1: (laughs) but
0: you know, there's that famous movie about Vince Lombardi starring Ernest Borgnine, where he goes to, he takes on the role of coaching the Green Bay Packers and finds out they are abysmal. So he brings them all into the locker room and says, we're going to get back to the basics. And he holds up a football and he says, this is a football. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And so if you think about trying to teach people very basic fundamentals Mm -hmm. in the first third of the book but you got to do it in a way that captivates Mm -hmm. or they're just going to hate you right right (laughs) i mean there are only so many ways you could hold up a football and say this is a football (laughs) then in the middle of the book you start applying those Mm -hmm. fundamentals i see we start seeing how do we take this set of fundamentals that apply it to this kind of real estate or real estate in this kind of scenario or real estate invested for this reason. And then in the last part of the book, we then build on that by saying, here are these special situations like real estate investment trusts or Mm -hmm. brownfields or real estate in distress or Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And so the careful reader who's been taking notes is picking up on all that. Now, that having been said, because it is a textbook, each one of these chapters kind of have to stand on their own. They've got to be enjoyable reading. They've got to tell a good story. But in the middle and the end of the book, they will kind of force you, if you're totally ignorant, to go back to chapter one and say, okay, what is he saying? There? And that means you got to do some callbacks, you know, right. as we said in chapter three.
2: Right, right. So they know where to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, I wish that every... Academic textbook I read was written the way you're describing.
0: (laughs) Some are. I know some good writers. I know some terrible writers who get published because they are writing on a topic for which there's some demand and for which they are the source authority. When I went to college, I took a course called Sea Power, The History of Sea Power, and it was uh, written by Chester Nimitz. Yeah. Okay. You're get to get somebody to write a book on the history of sea power. Probably one of the great admirals of the 20th century ought to write it. <laughs> As okay. it turned out, he was actually a fairly good read, fairly good writer. <laughs>
2: that's,
0: that's <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> but there's some good writers on technical. Yeah. You know, but there are some terrible
2: writers, too. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges I've seen in academic writing, like your book is more professional development, but there's an educational tech. <laughs> But it's too much passive voice, right? And kind of this distancing from, it was observed that, you know.
0: I am, there is a book, and remember, I'm a technical guy. I studied finance and math. And there's a book, not on my desk here, unfortunately. It's for your listeners. I am in Key West, Florida right now. And the home, home base is in the foothills of the Cascades outside of Seattle. There's a book on my desk up there called Econometrics, which is the math of economics. And it's published by MIT Press. And I just utterly forgot the name of the author. That's terrible. But this author writes on an extraordinarily dry topic in a most engaging way.
2: Mm. Yes, exactly. And it can be it doesn't have to be boring, but <laughs> in fact,
0: he starts off the forward to the book, is a comedic ditty about a young woman that's set, like in the 1920s or 30s, a young woman who has married an econometrician. And she's trying to explain to her aunt why econometricians are not nearly as boring. As one might think they would be. (laughs) And and, and in a span of about two or three pages, he tells this rather comedic little ditty set in the 1920s or 30s. And there was a textbook on thermodynamics, and the opening paragraph, chapter one, page one, paragraph one, starts out You know, in 1832, so and so invented the study of thermodynamics and promptly committed suicide. Uh, In in 1873, so-and-so furthered the field of thermodynamics and was murdered by the husband of an angry lover or something. In 1906, you know, so-and-so published the great tome on thermodynamics, an untimely death. Now we shall study thermodynamics. You read a paragraph like that, and you instantly know that somebody has a sense of humor, and that sense of humor is going to kind of permeate.
2: Oh, brilliant. You know, I think what you're sharing is so valuable for people who are considering writing an academic text, because I think that there's a myth that you have to be really serious, or you can't add any personality, But everything you're sharing is really so many great examples of... How, even when you're writing for academia or even when you're writing a textbook, you know, and maybe especially, <laughs> you know, that it's really important to allow yourself to be a little playful, allow yourself to entertain your reader as well as educate them.
0: I, um, sitting here in Key West, I live right down the street from the um, house Ernest Hemingway lived in for about 10 years, mm-hmm. did some of this great writing down here. And Hemingway, if you're an aficionado, Hemingway's captivating. Many people hate him, but <laughs> many more certainly bought his books. But one does not read a Hemingway book expecting to chuckle. You know, there's an old saying about Hemingway: How does Hemingway respond to the question, "Why did the chicken cross the road to die,
2: <laughs> to
0: die alone?" <laughs> <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> he would go out drinking until about two or three in the morning and then get up at daybreak and write for four hours with a splitting hangover. Uh, I, uh, I will say that novelists often have the luxury of not being funny.
2: Well, yes, yes, yes. Not saying that the only way to be entertaining is to be funny. But I think if when you're writing an academic text, especially for a really heady, sort of notoriously difficult subject, it could really help pull your reader in and make it maybe less intimidating. Yeah, Yeah,
0: I remember taking freshman chemistry in college and wish you had coached. (laughs) It's kind of hard to make freshman chemistry interesting or captivating.
2: Right.
0: Hard to put a sense of humor in it. But believe it or not, some people who write on topics like that manage to figure out a way to make stories captivating and somewhat interesting. And it's helpful, I guess, if you like to be a storyteller, whether you are good at it or not. And I don't know whether I'm good at it or not.
2: Oh, I, come, I, come on. Come on.
0: <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt himself <laughs> as a master mixologist. And whenever people would be at the White House after dinner and retreat upstairs to have a meeting, the very first thing they would do is have martinis. Mm. And Roosevelt, because he fashioned himself to be the greatest bartender in the world, would always fix the martini. He would mix them by his own, and everybody would take a martini sure. and sip them and tell the President of the United States what a wonderful drink it is. Truth be told, his martinis were awful. He was would- <laughs> Terrible at it. Everybody <laughs> writing about it after the fact admitted that Franklin Roosevelt did not know how to mix a drink, but he thought he did, <laughs> and he loved doing it, and he always did it and because he was president of the United States. Everybody liked this.
2: <laughs> Are you suggesting? But see, you don't wield that kind of power that you could force us all to listen to your stories, John. So you must <laughs> have some talent. <laughs> It's a spectrum,
0: you know? (laughs) (laughs) Zero to 100. (laughs) Where I sit on that spectrum, I don't. So, what I have learned from that, though, is to mix simple drinks for my friends. There you go. (laughs) And in my writing, I can't remember one literary critic commented about Hemingway and said, he's never written anything that caused you to reach for a dictionary. And I think. People who are writing technical books mistake the notion of dumbing it down versus making it readable. Mm-hmm. You don't need to impress me with words like loquacious in, in order to tell me I talk too much.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, some of the best writing, particularly on technical topics, you know, it can be short to the point. Be sparse and careful with the use of adjectives and adverbs. You know, I don't have any particular rules of thumb for that, but, but I, I try to...
2: I'll just want to add to what you're saying, because there's one more thing. I think it's also to show how it's relevant to the reader. Like, not just you need to learn this so you can get the credit that is required mm-hmm. for your diploma, but to show how this information actually has a connection to you, to your life in some way. In doing that, here's what I attempted
0: to do in each chapter was tie everything I'm writing about back to stuff that you might read in a magazine or newspaper. For instance, one of the chapters was about the accumulation of real estate investments in a multi-generational family. Mm. And I took the time to research the 25 biggest real estate holders in America. yeah got their names, how much they had invested in real estate, which is kind of interesting, it's almost a little salacious, you know? Right,
1: right. Find out.
0: <laughs> they own that? Right. Really? <laughs> and then there was a chapter on investing in open space lands like timberland farmland uh, those kinds of things and i was able to get a list of the top 20 vacant landowners in america and by the way the top might not even be the top 20 might be the top 10 private landowners in america own acreage equal to rhode island and connecticut put together amazing how much vast open spaces is is, so there's a joke that ted turner his goal was that he could ride his horse from the montana canadian border all the way to mexico and never leave his own land (laughs) (laughs) he didn't quite do that but you know in doing that it tends to take topics which can be a little driving investing in timberland how do you value timberland right It's a complicated mathematical formula, by the way. The common formula for valuing a stand of timber is really going to take you back to a calculus textbook. If you can talk about this in terms of Ted Turner riding his horse across the Montana Plains.
2: Exactly. So it connects to something. Again, it's like it might be hard for the reader to picture the mathematical formula and the significance of that, but I can picture Ted Turner on a horse riding down south, you know, through yeah. the temple right? So, I mean, that's just a perfect example of if you can paint an image for your reader that they can connect to something that they do feel has some relevance or they feel some connection to, then it's easier to teach them the hard stuff.
0: Keep in mind the editorial process, the process of getting a million words down to hundred. 180- You're talking to people who are trying to think of, how do I take 80,000 words and turn that into (laughs) 180,000? No, 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 no. You start out with a million words worth of information and get down to 180,000. The process of doing that cannot lose the interesting parts. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. It's
0: the interesting parts are what cause people, that's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. exactly. Exactly. By the way, and this is just a personal affectation, but each chapter in my book began with a broken out quote from somebody, you know, famous about the rationale for investing in real estate. Oh, nice. Why one invests in real estate, how, you know, nobody ever got poor investing in real estate, that sort of thing. Yeah. And these were great quotes, famous people in history. And, you know, I tried to, mix it up and get a, get a, a broad array of the, who the reader might connect with. And thus, to make these chapters kind of easygoing reading, almost making this like a book you want to read by the side of the pool at beat. Yeah.
2: Well, it sounds actually really fascinating. You know, I know you've only shared little bits with us, but yeah, it sounds like you've done a great job with it.
1: All right. Now, listen, I cannot
2: believe we are almost at an hour, which I'm like, this time has just flown by. So I have to skip ahead to my now trademark final question. Yes. Which is, what question did I not ask you that you would love to answer?
0: What's my next book? (laughs)
2: Perfect. (laughs) What's your next book, John?
0: And it's a tie. Okay because and believe it or not you would think with the pandemic i would have had plenty of time to nose the ground but there was so much reorganization of my business and doing other things that i've gotten about halfway through the next book which is sort of a spin-off of the one we've been talking about and it takes a very narrow topic in the book which is investing in trophy property Mm -hmm. how to analyze And understand the concept of uh, historic property, architecturally valuable property, property that has unique characteristics or may have a name, like 30 Rockefeller Center, the Empire State Building, the Farnsworth House in Plato, Illinois, that was designed by the great architect Mies van der Rohe. Any of these are trophy properties, but also open space lands that might have uh, historic or paleontological importance. Mm-hmm. We advised the ranch owner who discovered a dinosaur named Sue, the most intact T Rex skeleton ever found in North America oh, uh, on his goodness. ranch so cool. in the Dakotas. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So
1: you and advised so him on.
0: Our firm, I did, actually didn't get involved in that project, okay. but our firm advised him on a lot of valuation and economic issues. Not pertaining to the dinosaur, Mm
1: -hmm. because that
0: was something that ended up at the field museum, but advised him on how to optimize the value of the remaining real estate, which was being coveted by every paleontologist. Wow. And it's not just a matter of taking it out to the highest bidder, it's also a matter of thinking out how do we chop and dice this? How do we Mm -hmm. slice it up and figure out a way that everybody gets access? And some of that's going to be in the form of tax credits, and some of it's going to be in the form of right. 501c3 type monies sure. and, and what have you. So it's not all just pure highest bidder capitalism. And so my hook on that is the valuation of the historic residences. But I was and originally starting to write a book on the valuation of historic residences. And then I found out that there are other people who'd done pretty good jobs of that. Right. So I decided to expand it to the whole panoply of trophy property and that book's about half done unfortunately the, i'm violating my own principle in that i started out with an outline and then let myself wander from it so i'm gonna have to get back to outlining the book and then almost start over with a more diligently disciplined outline
2: well, thank you so much for sharing about that. It sounds fascinating. And I look forward to hearing when that's out.
0: You know, we'll see. I mean, we haven't even thought about who would publish it yet because it may or may not be a McGraw-Hilly type book. I don't have a contract with them. So, you know, right. we'll see where that goes.
2: Well, John, thank you so much for being here and for sharing all your incredible wisdom about how (laughs) it's really great. It's like how to take highly technical information and package it in a way for your readers so that it's entertaining as well as informative. I try. Such a huge value. So thank you again for being with us on The Author's Corner.